you take up the Bibles in front of you, it's time for our reading. Today we'll be reading Esther, chapters 8 through 10. And just as you turn to page 506, since we're reading the end of the book today, let me remind you that the main characters have been the king of the empire, King Xerxes, and his top advisor, Haman, and Queen Esther and her advisor and friend, Mordecai. Earlier, Haman was incensed when Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him which Mordecai wouldn't do as a Jew. And Haman responded by planning to kill every Jew in the empire and building a gallows on which to hang Haman. But Esther, who's also Jewish, revealed the plan. And we pick it up now just after Haman, the enemy of God's people, has been hung on the very gallows that he himself built. So here we are, chapter 8. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now, write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. 
in every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them, because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews, because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashtha, Arasai, Aradai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observed the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy, and giving presents of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast the pur, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews 
should come back onto his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore these days were called Purim from the words Pur. Because of everything written in this letter, and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who join them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king had raised him. Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. This is God's word. Thank you both for reading. Do uh, keep Esther 8, 9 and 10 open, if you would. Let's pray for God's help as we listen to this final part of the story. Father, these events are from long ago and far away. They are violent and in some ways troubling to us. But we ask that you would help us not only to understand them, but to understand what they mean for us here in London today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me begin with a couple of questions, if I may. How relieved have you been and how scared have you been in your life? The two questions are, of course, related. If I have been slightly scared and the scare is taken away, I will be slightly relieved. So to take a trivial example, if you're walking or running through the woods and you trip on a tree root and you're almost going to fall and you manage to stop yourself from falling, you've been slightly scared and you'll be slightly relieved. But you won't be very relieved because the danger wasn't very serious. But those amongst us here who have faced something really serious, a life-threatening illness, the danger of death, and that scare has been taken away, then you and I will be very, very happy. And the main point I want us to grasp from this morning, from the end of the book of Esther, is this, that, if I can put it bluntly, only those who have 
stood at the mouth of hell and been rescued will fully appreciate the wonder and the happiness and the joy that comes from being in Christ. In the chapters we're going to be listening to now, we're going to see a a group of people who were very, very scared and we're going to see them become very, very happy. Now let me say before we launch in, it is Mothering Sunday and I've managed to choose a Bible passage in which 75,000 people get killed, including, I think, women and children. And you think, well, that was a great choice for Mothering Sunday. (laughs) I didn't plan it that way. And when I realized that, I thought there is a certain um, irony about that. But the, the grittiness of these chapters, I hope will help us to get hold of the truth that Christianity is gritty. Christianity is about matters of life and death. The other thing to say before we launch into the story is that when Bible storytellers tell Bible history, it's it's quite important to grasp that when they do that, their concern is usually to tell a big story. And in the course of the big story, people do things uh, which may be morally ambiguous or indeed wrong. And the storytellers don't always pause to comment. So as as they tell the story, they don't pause all the time and say, oh, by the way, that was bad, or by the way, that wasn't a very good thing to do, or whatever like that. All sorts of things happen in Bible history, some good, some bad, some ambiguous. But the storytellers are concerned with the big story, and so they they, they quite often don't pause to, to comment on the detailed morality of the participants. And that, I think, will be important for us, because I want us to focus on the big story um, primarily. It takes place in three parts. And uh, chapter 8, I've called Judgment Decreed. Judgment Decreed. Uh, Aaron very helpfully gave us um, a reminder that what's happened earlier in the story is that Haman, the enemy of the people of God, has persuaded King Xerxes, the the, the Medo-Persian emperor, to allow an edict to be issued that every single one of the people of God in pretty much the whole known world shall be destroyed at the end of one particular year. It's an edict of death. And last week, in chapters 5, 6, and 7, we saw the dramatic denouement in the palace in the center of government, the citadel in Susa, in which Haman, the enemy of the Jews, um, falls and is executed. And Mordecai, the righteous member of the people of God, is elevated. And we saw how that change at the seat of government foreshadows the denouement of the cross of Christ, at which the enemy 
of righteousness, the murderer, the liar, the father of lies, the prince of this world, uh, was decisively defeated. And with the righteous man, Jesus, was won the victory at the cross over evil. And that, that victory is seen in the resurrection. And what we're going to see in chapters 8, 9, and 10 is how that victory at the heart of government, of the government of the empire, has implications for everybody. And the first thing we see is this judgment decreed. And I want us to notice as we look through chapter 8 how the edict that now goes out is point for point the reversal of the edict that had gone out in chapter 3, the edict for the destruction of the Jews. It's very, very striking, and I want to try and draw attention to at least some of that. So, first one, that same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, and you see in verse 2, he took off his signet ring. He did exactly the same in chapter 3. Um, he, he took his signet ring off, and he gave it to Haman, Now he takes his signet ring, that symbol of his authority, and he gives it to Mordecai. And then if you look on to um, verses 7 and 8, another decree is going to be issued. With the same authority, the same signet ring, another decree issued, and it's issued in March, although as we would say March, the third month, uh, the, the destruction of the people of God is set for the twelfth month, so we're nine months or so in advance. And then notice in verse 10 that Mordecai seals the dispatches with the signet ring, exactly as Haman had done in chapter 3. If you've got time later in the day, read chapter 8 and chapter 3 side by side, and you'll see these things point for point being reversed. The seal Um, the the edict is sealed. And then look at the content in chapter 8, verse... Well, chapter 3, Haman's edict said, destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, and plunder their goods. Now have a look at verse 11 in chapter 8. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. That is to say, this is not indiscriminate killing. This is authority from the central government of the Persian Empire to defend themselves against those who would otherwise kill them. So it's rough, but there is justice in it. It's not permission to kill anybody. It's permission to kill those who would otherwise kill them. It's very precise. Notice the day, verse 12, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. It's exactly the day that was set for the killing of the Jews in chapter 3, the same day. And then the publicity, verse 13, a copy is to be issued in every province and made known to the people of every nationality and the couriers race out. Exactly the same as happened with Haman's edict in chapter 3. 
And then notice the response. Just glance back for a moment to chapter 3 and notice a contrast. Here is a difference. Just glance at chapter 3, verse 15. After Haman's edict is issued, the city of Susa, that is the, the people in the city, not the seat of government, the, the people just living in, the, in that settlement, was bewildered. Now have a look at chapter 8 and see the difference. Chapter 8, verse 15. Mordecai comes out dressed as, uh, in royal garments as the head of government. And verse 15, the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. And it's a time of happiness and joy. And all over the empire, verse 17, every province, joy, gladness among the Jews. And many people of other nationalities became Jews. Isn't that extraordinary? So here's a change. Back in chapter 3, the city of Susa was bewildered by this terrible edict that the Jews should be slaughtered. Now, when the edict is reversed, there is celebration. And the celebration is, is amongst the Jews, obviously. Of course they celebrate, because they're not going to be killed. But notice that extraordinary little comment that lots of people became Jews. I don't think that this necessarily means a great heart change. But they saw which way the wind was blowing. Back at the beginning of the book of Esther, you have to keep quiet about being a Jew. It's a slightly scary thing to, for, it, for it to become known that you belong to the people of God. Now suddenly it becomes the best thing in the world to be. It's the fulfillment really of the promise in Genesis 12 where God promised Abraham. He said, anyone who blesses you will be blessed and anyone who curses you will be cursed. And we've seen that with Haman the enemy of the Jews. He's been cursed, he's been killed, he's been executed, and rightly so. And now, people who, who might have been ambivalent and they're not sure who the, where they are as regards this people of God, they're beginning to realize that far from it being a scary thing to belong to the people of God, that's the only safe thing to be. And so they're becoming Jews. I don't know exactly what that meant, but they were identifying themselves with the Jews in some way. They were saying, no, no, count me as a Jew. It's a big change and a big transformation. So there is the verdict. And in a sense, that verdict speaks to us of two verdicts that go out into the world. There is a verdict or edict of death that in a sense is foreshadowed by Haman's edict of death. Every time you and I go to a funeral, it reminds us that you and I live in a world under an edict of death. You and I live in a world under the shadow of death. That is the righteous judgment of God against sinners in his holiness. But the second verdict is an anticipation, really, of the gospel. And it's the edict that all who will trust in God, and ultimately all who will trust in God's Messiah, in Christ, will live. So there is judgment decreed. Now, chapter 9, verses 1 to 19, I've called judgment accomplished. 
we, we, we've moved on several months now to the twelfth month. And you see in verse 1, uh, on this, this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, everything's been turned upside down, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. Now, you and I are troubled by this because it is very violent. But friends, before we get too squeamish, let me just say this. It was slightly provocative. You and I can sit in a cafe in Islington, sipping our cappuccinos, saying, oh dear, oh dear, people have got killed. And if we're like that, we just need to get out a bit more. We need to get out into a world in which people do evil things, and which, in which the perpetrators of evil things deserve to die. This is one or the other. So we've got to say to ourselves, if the choice is between murderers being killed and their intended victims being killed, and if the murderers get killed, you've got to say that's a good thing. You've got to say that's a good thing, haven't you? Isn't it better for the murderers to be, to be, to be, to be killed than for, for their intended victims to be killed? Because that's what's happening, at least approximately, um, here. Now notice verse 2, the Jews assembled in all the provinces to attack those seeking their destruction. So they're killing those who, who, were, who were ready to kill them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them and the nobles and the, uh, the, 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 the government helped them, verse 3, because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent. Notice it's Mordecai's elevation as the righteous one brought into the, into, into the government of the empire. That's why they win. Just as for Christian people, it is Jesus Christ's elevation to the government of the universe that means that we can be assured of final victory. And so they do, verse 5. They strike down their enemies. And notice verse 6, in the citadel, the seat of government, they kill 500 men. Slightly scary thought that in the seat of the Persian government, there were 500 men, and as we shall see probably more, determined to kill the Jews. Right at the heart of government, there were these 500. Never mind all the others scattered around the rest of the empire. It's a scary thought really, isn't it, you think, for, for Esther and Mordecai in those, those, those days before this happened. So they kill them, and they kill the sons of Haman, whose names may possibly have demonic overtones. Um, but, but they would have carried on Haman's hatred. But notice verse 10, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. We'll come back to that in a moment. So verse 11, they report the number to the king, and the king says to the queen, there's been 500 people in the citadel, who've been killed, uh, what's happened in the rest of the empire. And Esther says to the king, uh, verse 13, please can we have another day to kill some more people in the citadel? And of course the commentators have a field day and they say, oh dear, oh dear, this doesn't reflect very well on Esther. The sweet, pretty Esther. Please give us another day to kill some more. You know, so tut, 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 tut. They say, well maybe... 
Maybe it doesn't reflect well on Esther, I'm not sure. Or maybe, maybe she knew that in the citadel of Esther, actually there were still more vicious, murderous enemies of the Jews, and they needed to be removed. We don't know for sure. But anyway, it happens. And they, they publicly execute the, the, the um, display the bodies of the sons of Haman as a public evidence um, that, 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 that he is condemned and all who are with him. And then in the rest of the empire, there's a whole lot more happens. But notice verse 15. They did not lay their hands on the plunder. And then at the end of, um, in, in the middle of verse 16, end of verse 16, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So what's going on? Back in chapter 8, in the edict, they were given permission to plunder their enemies. So Haman's edict said, you can kill the Jews and plunder them. Mordecai's edict said, you can kill the people who are trying to kill you and plunder them. And three times in chapter 9 we're told they didn't plunder them. What's going on? Now the background to this is the concept of what's called holy war. And holy war works like this. Holy war works like this, that, 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 that human beings, are to, the people of God, were to act as the agents of the judgment of God and as a safeguard against that becoming a, a mask for human vengefulness and greed. They were not allowed to profit from it. So the deal was you had to... To, 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 to kill those who needed to be killed in righteous judgment. But you couldn't profit for, from it, which, of course, is what you normally do in, 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 in fighting and war. You plunder the people you've killed. That's how it works in the world. But no, you don't, and they didn't do that. Now, in terms of Old Testament history, there's a backstory because centuries before King Saul was supposed to have done that with Agag, Remember, Haman is called an Agagite, Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And King Saul signally fails because he does plunder them. He keeps the plunder. He shows that his motive is not godly but greedy. But now there's something here which at least approximately is godly. They do not lay their hands on the plunder. That doesn't mean that every individual act that happened in this terrible day of, or days of violence was done out of pure motives. But it means that at least approximately there's something there that the people doing this are agents of the judgment of God. Now that whole idea is not one that you and I are um, invited to follow. Anyone who thinks that holy war can be carried out today have not understood the New Testament and they haven't understood that the whole concept of holy war is a foreshadowing of the final judgment of God. But it is a foreshadowing of the final judgment of God and what happened on that day, and the, well, those two days in the citadel, what happened on that day was a good thing. It was a good thing when a whole bunch of murderers are judged. And if we don't think it's a good thing, as I say, we do need to get out more. It is a good thing when those who are determined on genocide are stopped in their tracks. 
like this. And it will be a good thing on the last day when those who are finally impenitent and finally hate God right to the end when they are destroyed. Now thank God you and I do not know who they are. Saul of Tarsus, you would have thought, was one of them. But in the mercy of God, he was turned round and became an apostle of Christ. Judas Iscariot looked like a friend of Christ. And yet, sadly, at the end was seen to be an enemy. You and I do not know. We cannot look round and say who's going to be on which side at the end. Thank God we can't. That's a good thing. But if we trust in Christ and belong to God, you and I need to learn that we have been rescued from a very great danger. And that's why from chapter 9, uh, verse 20 through to the end, I've called this last section, Judgment, Celebrated. And uh, chapter 9, verse 20, uh, right the way through, more or less, to the end, uh, says Mordecai recorded the events and Mordecai and Esther between them sent out instructions all over the empire and notice what they said, verse uh, 12, uh, verse 21, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. And these were to be days of feasting and joy and giving presents, literally portions or lots of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And the point I want to, 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 to leave us with here is that they didn't remember the killings. They remembered the rescue. They remembered that they had been standing at the mouth of hell. They had been facing extinction. They had been facing destruction. And God rescued them. And so every year they had this tremendous festival to remind themselves of that and to be thankful. Just notice in verse 27... The Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who join them. Do you notice that expression, all who join them? So the door is open for people to join them. And all, or even down Old Testament history, there was this choice. I may not be born a Jew, but I can join them. I can, I can ask to be identified with them. I can line myself up with these people. I can join them. And I can join them in that celebration. An universal, annual, unceasing celebration. And in verses 29 to the end of the chapter, Queen Esther adds her authority to Mordecai's. And in short, chapter 10, there's something about Mordecai's greatness at the end. He's the one who brings blessing to the Jews. Now, if you're an Old Testament believer, every time the festival of Purim comes round and you remember the, 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 the fluke, because Purim means fluke, it means rolling dice, it means chance, 
You remember the fluke, or is it, by which your people was rescued? Why do you celebrate that? I want to suggest that if you're a believer in the Old Testament, you celebrate that not just because it was a great relief to people 600 years, you know, 600 BC for that to happen. I want to suggest that if you're a real believer, you celebrate Purim as an Old Testament believer because you believe that what that story in history pictures is going to lead to a great fulfillment. Which is why, if you're a Christian, Jew or Gentile, when you read this story and you see the destruction of Haman the enemy and the elevation of Mordecai, you say to yourself, that is a picture of the judgment of the prince of this world and the elevation of the righteous Jesus. And when you see the decree that's issued to say that the people of God are going to come out on top, you say, that is a picture of the gospel. And when you see that terrible day when the tables are turned, terrible and wonderful at the same time, you think that is a picture of the final judgment. And when you see the festival of Purim happening and the joy and relief that, that is breathed through that festival, you say to yourself as a Christian, I'm a man or woman who has stood at the mouth of hell. I've known what it is to live in a world under an edict of death. I remember a friend of mine saying to me that when he became a Christian as a young man, it was as though the, the pains of hell had got hold of him through a guilty conscience. He felt so terrible for things that he'd done and said and thought, and so guilty. And he said, I remember him using that expression, he said it was as though the pains of hell had got hold of him. He was a young man in his early 20s. And the book of Esther portrays to us people who have stood at the mouth of hell and faced destruction and been rescued. And friends, if you and I belong to Jesus Christ, you and I should be like that. If somebody says to you, you're a Christian, what does it mean? And all you and I can say is, well, I've found a purpose in life, or I feel better about myself, or I enjoy the company of Christian friends. Well, great, but it's not the point. You're not going to feel very happy about that. You'll feel a bit happy about that. But if you and I, if you and I are asked if we're Christian people, what does it mean to be a Christian? And we can say, I have found the forgiveness of my sins. I've stood at the mouth of hell. I've begun to understand what it is to be a sinful person, to be under the judgment of God. I've begun to have some sense of what a terrible thing that is. And in Jesus Christ, I've been rescued. Then you and I will experience something of the real joy of Purim. We don't celebrate Old Testament festivals anymore. Every time we remember the Lord's Supper, we remember the death of Jesus for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. And that should be a time of very great joy. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to be a Christian. So I guess there's a word of challenge for us if we've never really experienced that conviction of sin. 
to pray really that God in his kindness, even perhaps for some of us in the middle of our Christian lives, will give us a fresh sense of what a terrible thing it would be to have my sins unforgiven. It's a, it's a, it's a word for those who aren't as yet Christian believers. If your sins are not forgiven, you do stand at the mouth of hell, if I can put it roughly like that. And you need the rescue that the book of Esther pictures. And for those who are Christian believers, let us learn in our Christian lives to be reminded by this book of the wonder and the joy and the happiness of seeing the tables turned, of seeing the downfall of evil, of knowing in the elevation of the Lord Jesus, whom Mordecai foreshadows, of seeing in his greatness and his goodness and the benefit and blessing that he brings to, the, to his people, that if you and I belong to Christ, you and I benefit from him. It is a wonderful thing to be a Christian. Let's be quiet for a moment. I'll pray uh, as we finish. God, our Father, we thank you that when the Lord Jesus died on the cross, the tables were turned. We thank you for the victory that he won over evil. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins and rescue that he won for us. And we pray that in our hearts there might be that deep conviction of sin and that deep joy in rescue, that we might be glad to belong to Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.